the old pilot's plain tales into the vortex. Chatting to our APG listener, Mark Librowski, on Facebook the other day, we were discussing wake turbulence, and my mind wandered back some 35 years. A corporal assistant air traffic controller was doing her stint in the little red and white caravan pitched at the end of the runway at RAF Lucas. It was a mundane task with little to do except keep an eye on the phantom fighters as they lined up for takeoff, looking for red remove-before-flight flag still fluttering from missiles or gear, and the more common fluid leak stripping from the hydraulics or fuel tanks. One day, though, uh, through her powerful military binoculars, she had even spotted the little tag on a pin left in an ejector seat drogue gun that would have spelt death had the unwilling occupant tried to abandon the aircraft. Her duties weren't just limited to the last chance checks on aircraft. She kept an eye on the aircraft on finals as well, mainly looking to ensure that some over-eager pilot hadn't rushed his checks and left his gear up as he lined his aircraft up to land. Her red very flare and oldest lamp were close to hand for emergencies, but should time permit, she had a squawk box, which gave her a direct line to the tower controller. She watched a pair of F-4s get airborne, their bright reheats competing with the setting sun as they disappeared into the growing darkness. In the quiet of the evening, with nothing much to do but watch the rabbits jump around the rolls of barbed wire that separated the airfield from the beach, and listen to the curlews cry as they prodded the banks of the nearby estuary, her mind wandered a little. She was still reliving the drama of a few weeks ago, when, sitting in the very same caravan, she watched an F-111 make an emergency approach. The station tannoy had blared out twice, Emergency State 2, Emergency State 2, F-111 on 20-mile finals for runway 27, double hydraulic failure. Only a minute or two later, she saw fire engines, ambulances and the doctor's Land Rover line up near the runway. An exercise was on, and the 43 squadron pilots had wandered out of their remote dispersal, not far from her, with a sofa into which they settled to watch the fun. Moments later, the fun turned into a drama when the F-111 came into view. There was definitely a problem as the aircraft wallowed around the sky. The pilot seemed to be fighting with the controls and the flight path was very erratic when, only a mile or so away, there was a bright flash and the cockpit separated from the rest of the aircraft, rising on a plume of fire. Moments later, a huge parachute deployed, and the front end of the aircraft began to drift gracefully towards the beach. Her sigh of relief for the safety of the crew soon changed into a gasp of alarm as the rest of the aircraft reared up and began to career straight towards her, before falling short and hitting the ground in an enormous ball of flame only a few hundred metres away, she was close enough to feel the heat through her open windows. What she didn't know was that the 43 Squadron boss, as he evicted the junior pilot from the sofa and settled his backside into the cushions, had done so muttering something that would be forever remembered. OK, I'm comfortable. It can crash now. 
His pilots now stared at him with a confused mixture of awe and suspicion as they tried to extract the promise that he shouldn't ever use his unearthly powers on them. The corporal was woken from her daydreaming by some chatter on her radio repeater as the pair of phantoms seemed to be returning. They were early. It hadn't been long since they'd been handed off to the fighter controllers at Bucken. She wondered why they were coming back early, but then all became clear. The number one aircraft, flown by the squadron Quip, the qualified weapon instructor pilot, with cinders in the back seat, had suffered a main attitude indicator failure. Although he had a little backup indicator, he had decided to get his wingman to lead him back in close formation until he was close enough to the runway to get in without any problems. His wingman was a new pilot, not yet operational and not doing so well, so the task might give him a bit more confidence. Night formation was never easy in the days before formation strip lights that more modern aircraft had. It meant juggling a little triangle of lights, two on the wingtip and one on the fuselage. Not an easy task. She picked up her bins and peered at the aircraft. It was hard to make out their undercarriage through the glare of the landing lights, but at least she could see the little sets of traffic lights on the nose-wheel doors that flickered between green and amber, showing the aircraft's angle of attack. She wasn't sure what that was all about. It was something to do with when they were Navy aircraft, but she knew she wasn't supposed to see the red one. Everything looked okay, so she relaxed back into her swivel chair, thinking about that thermos flask of tea and ginger knobs that she was saving till later. The aircraft came smoothly down the approach, until it was time for the leading aircraft to break away and let the quip continue ahead and land. She had watched this a few times, but this looked different. Instead of banking away, the leader accelerated ahead, still lined up with the runway and descending towards the threshold before pulling up and turning into the circuit. The landing aircraft continued ahead for a moment before its wings started rocking sharply from side to side, and then the pilot lost complete control. She heard the engines power up as he desperately tried to get away from the ground, but he was too close. The aircraft smashed into the end of the runway in a bright shower of sparks from wing and tail. It was enormous, almost close enough for her to touch and coming straight for her. The flaming wreckage bounced, getting airborne again, passing just over the little red and white checkered caravan before impacting again beyond. She didn't hear the tower controller shouting, Crash! 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 as he pounded the red alarm button. She didn't hear the sirens in the tannoy shouting, Emergency State 1, aircraft crash! Nor did she hear the near simultaneous bangs of two ejector seats rocketing out of the crippled phantom, so close to each other that cinders got an unexpected sunburn from the rocket motor of the quip seat only feet above him. She stood in shock deafened by the noise of the crash and the enormity of what had just happened, unable to even hear her squawk box, which shouted her name as her supervisor tried to see if she was still alive. I often wondered what happened to that corporal afterwards, if she stayed in air traffic controller or decided to take up a safer occupation. What I do know, though, is what happened to the aircraft and 
It's something that affects all aircraft, from puddle jumpers to huge airliners, when they get too close to another machine ahead. Wake turbulence. Air is not the insubstantial stuff we often think of when we feel a gentle breeze on the cheek. When it's moved en masse by the passing of an aircraft, it can have a destructive effect. Not only do we have to consider the fact that it is ploughed out of the way by a large machine moving at a considerable velocity, we must think of the even stronger effect that the wing creates when it does its job of making enough lift to support the weight of the aircraft. I'm sure that you all know that one of the ways a wing makes lift is by creating a pressure differential between the upper and lower surfaces. Low pressure above and relatively high pressure below. The thing about pressure is that it always wants to equalize itself by flowing from one to the other. And so it is on a wing. The air moving over a wing doesn't want to flow straight from front to back. It sees a shortcut around the wingtip where it can sneak from the lower surface to the upper. It does this whilst travelling aft, so if you can picture this in your head, it moves in a spiral path. Now imagine this occurring around a wing that is supporting several hundred tons of weight and you can perhaps see the magnitude of the problem. Behind every aircraft there are two powerful vortices streaming from each wingtip that can cause following aircraft a whole host of problems. The heavier the aircraft, the larger the vortex, and the more lift a wing is producing, say pulling up in a hard turn, the larger the vortex. Even though the addition of wing plates, wing fences, turned up tips and the like can slightly reduce the intensity of a vortex, it's not sufficient for them to become benign. There's a lot of inertia within a strong vortex, which means that they can persist for a considerable time and distance. They also grow from a tight spiral near the wingtip to cover quite a considerable area, nearly a hundred feet across. They can be powerful enough to easily overcome the aircraft's controls and have been known to invert large aircraft and worse. They can also affect an aircraft at any level, but they are most dangerous near the ground where an aircraft that is turned on its side by a strong weight vortex doesn't have the room to recover. So why don't we hear of airliners being continually flipped upside down by the one ahead? The effects of weight turbulence has been known for some decades now and rules put in place to uh, ensure the safety of a following aircraft. The industry continues to learn about how to best avoid the problem and it also continues to educate its pilots on the danger. The basis of current rules is that a minimum time or distance between following aircraft is designed to allow the wake turbulence to dissipate. The separation depends on an aircraft's weight and that's divided into one of several categories, light, medium, heavy and super heavy. To give you an idea, Dr. Steph's twin Piper Seneca is light. Captain Jeff's Mad Dog would be medium. Miami Rick's 747 Dinosaur would be heavy. And the vast Airbus A380 is super. But we all knew that, didn't we? The separation between types is usually regulated by air traffic. But pilots beware. The separation given is a minimum. But as often or not, 
particularly when it's busy, it's the norm. If air traffic gives you a visual approach, amongst the many areas of responsibility they blithely hand over is separation for wake turbulence, one of the many reasons I strongly dislike this American habit. It's worth learning a bit on how a vortex behaves, as it can give you an idea of when your hackles should be rising. A vortex descends about three to 500 feet a minute for the first 30 seconds, and then settles at about 900 feet below the aircraft. So if you are cruising close to an aircraft in front and lower than it, try offsetting your track or be more than 1,000 feet below to avoid a chance encounter. On approach and after takeoff, the vortex descends to around 50 feet above the ground where it stabilizes in ground effect. When a vortex settles near the ground, because of its spinning nature, it moves outwards at about three knots. That means if you have a one to five knot crosswind, it could just sit there right in your path. Over six knots across and the vortex will move out of your way reasonably quickly and will break up more rapidly. Being a heavy aircraft is no protection either. Certainly a lighter category aircraft won't trouble you too much, but get close enough and you'll be in for an unpleasant surprise. As an example of the separation required, Steph in her light on approach behind Rick in his heavy needs at least six miles and on takeoff at least three minutes. There's plenty more on these requirements and how to deal with nearby runways online if you're interested. So what are the future? As more is known about the persistence of wake turbulence, more sophisticated ways of predicting how close aircraft can be are being devised. At Heathrow Airport, a sophisticated algorithm is used to allow less distance when the winds are strong, as low ground speed means that aircraft can fly closer and keep the same time separation, plus it's known that the vortex won't persist in rough windy conditions. One thing that we can be sure of, though, in a world of increasing traffic levels and greater demand, nobody is going to be looking for ways to keep aircraft further apart.